The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's word. Thank you, James. As we uh, continue in our worship in 1 Thessalonians, I want, I want to present just a few phrases you kind of consider uh, as we're thinking about this passage, what they might have in common, then we'll talk about them together. Here's some phrases maybe you've heard or even said. We've never done it that way before. That's not what I was taught growing up. I just can't imagine a God like that. I finally feel like I'm being true to myself. I've talked it over with others, and this is what I've decided. I read a book, and it changed my mind. That seems old-fashioned. That seems new and too progressive. I feel peace about it. I've never been happier this way. We love each other, and that's what matters. And what do these really have in common? These and many more phrases, believe me, I, I had several slides like this. I had to cut out a lot. Uh, these phrases and, and many others uh, that we've even said or heard before, uh, we use these to gauge what, is, what we think is right and wrong and how to live and what decisions we are to make. And so as we're walking in life and journeying through life, we, we're encountered with so many different forks in the road and so many de decisions, thousands and hundreds of thousands over a lifetime. And it can be daunting. It can be really challenging. How do we make a decision for what is right and good and true and, and what is wrong? And some of those phrases might pop into our minds as we, as we gauge what is right and wrong. When it comes to issues like sexual ethics and relationships and conflict and, and work and career and vocation and politics, we often apply these phrases and many others like them to different areas of our lives. But the whole of Christian life is not... Uh, summed up in phrases like that, but the whole of the Christian life is summed up in two words. Please God. Please God. Paul uses this metaphor uh, of walking in our passage. Uh, he, he usually he says, walk in a manner that pleases God. He actually uses this metaphor 32 times in his writings to churches all over uh, the area. And so if you're thinking about this metaphor of, of walking with God, it means that our lives are meant to be seen as a journey, as a progress through life. And as we travel along in our lives, we come to many different decisions. 
and many different paths that kind of shoot off of the path that we're on, and the one that God has placed us on. Hundreds of thousands of decisions along the way, dozens of decisions throughout a lifetime that might dramatically alter the course of our life and existence on this earth. Some lead to goodness and purity and holiness, other lead to wickedness and, and darkness and emptiness. And as we travel along, we're meant to carry with us a compass. So what Paul is saying is as you walk, carry with you a compass that shows you how to live and the way to go so you don't lose your way and fall into a lifestyle or habits or behaviors that, that don't please God, but rather please God. And here is how you can know that you're going along the right way to please God. And the compass points us towards the pleasure of God. He says, walk in this way. Keep walking in true north, in true relationship with God in a way that pleases him. So we're to fix our hearts and minds and affection on God and pleasing him because we know that this produces in us a, a life of joy and pleasure and goodness and purity and holiness and, and glory to God in our life. And that compass is the word of God. The things that Paul is teaching the church here, uh, the thing that he's reminding them of. He's reminding them of the story of God and the word of God, the instruction of God to them, the relationship they have in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, For you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He says, I've talked to you already about this. We've told you, we've given you the word of God, the instruction of Christ. Think of that word, instruction. Uh, instruction literally used as a, it's used elsewhere and in extra biblical context. This word is used as a, as a military term to mean marching orders. In other words, the whole passage here is about obedience. The whole passage is about how do we live in such a way to be obedient to the word of God and, and his instruction for our life so that we can walk in a way that produces joy, holiness, goodness, and honor to God. And so for today's passage, we're going to look at obedience. We're going to look at the pattern of obedience. We're going to look at the purpose of obedience and the power for obedience. So pattern, purpose, and power. The pattern for obedience. I'm convinced that the greatest struggle, one of the greatest struggles in the Christian life is a failure to understand a basic biblical pattern for why and, and how we should obey God and our struggle with obedience stems from our forgetfulness with who God is and, and what he has done and what he's like, his character and his work in our life. And wherever we're told to command or follow God in his scriptures, we're always first told, we're always first told who God is and what he has done. Right? We're never just thrown a command in scripture in isolation and just told, well, just obey this. The Bible is not a, a book of just moral ethics. It contains ethics, of course. It, it contains morality, but it is not just a, a summary of, of how to live. And whenever God tells us what to do, he always first tells us who he is and what he has done in our life. Let me show you this chart. Here's, here's a biblical pattern for obedience that we see everywhere. Wherever there is a command of God, it is never in isolation. It starts with the question, who is God? And just looking at this, this chart here, who is God? We're meant to answer that question as we look through the scriptures. We see that God, in, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is, he says he's our father. He's the living and true God. He is the one who um, is, is good and holy and, and, and righteous. And then we're told, uh, what has God done? This God who is 
is our Father and living and true and active in the world, what has he done? Well, he's, he's chosen us. He approves us. He transforms us. He rescues us from the wrath of God that is to come. And so when the wrath comes, we can be rescued from that and don't have to be afraid. And then we are to ask the question, well, well then who are we? What does that make us? Well, that means we are chosen. We are approved. We are transformed. We are rescued. We are loved. We're cherished and beloved by God. And only then are we to then ask the question, well, what are we to do in light of all that? We are to please him. We are to obey him. We are to love him. We are to walk in him. We are to enjoy him. And one of our biggest struggles in the Christian life is instead of from working from, from left to right on this chart and then coming to the conclusion of how are we to live in light of all that God has done and said and accomplished in our life, we work instead from, from right to left. This is legalism. This is what legalism is called. And so to keep our end of our obedience, what we say is, okay, what has God told us to do? When we look in the scriptures and all that we see are, don't do this and do this. And here's the right way to live. And so we read scriptures like, please God, remain pure, uh, uh, run from sexual immorality, love others, pursue holiness. We look at all those things and so we collect all of these commands that we are to live and then we start working in the opposite direction of that chart. And we say, if I am good, then that means God will look at me as a good person. If I am loving, then God will then love me. If I am righteous and holy and if I keep my end of the bargain of being obedient to God's commands, then he will transform me and love me and rescue me and choose me. And then we start to build our idea about who God is then. Well, then God is, is, is our father if we are good children. And so our biggest problem often in the Christian life is that we work backwards we don't have a good pattern for obedience, but all throughout Scripture and what Paul is doing here is he is wanting to give us a pattern for obedience. The first uh, chapters 1 through 3, Paul is showing us, he's talking to us about who God is, what he has done. And now he shifts and he's now telling us, okay, what do we do in light of all that? Remember who he is. Remember he has loved you. That his grace has been poured out on you. The gospel starts at the left. It always starts with who God is and who he's revealed himself to be. Biblical pattern for obedience always starts at the left. Verse uh, 3 in chapter 1, Paul says, For God has chosen you. The gospel's come to you in power. The Holy Spirit has filled you and given you evidence of your new life in Christ. The cross of, the cross of Jesus Christ has put an end to your need to strive for salvation because God has rescued you. Jesus has become our sin. He's died in our place. He's filled us with his power and presence, the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit in our life. He's welcomed us into a relationship with him to know and joy and to delight in God. And therefore, when we look into the future, we do not have to be afraid of what awaits us. We do not have to be afraid of the coming of Christ and his judgment on sin because we have been rescued from that. The wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus. And so if you know him, if you trust in him, if you believe in what he has done, because of what he has done this, walk with him. Live a life to please him. Think of this, if we fail to see who God is 
and what he has done for us in Jesus Christ, then it will be impossible to joyfully obey the commands of God. And we will increasingly become filled with either despair or pride because we will be anchoring our identity in our ability to obey. If we look at God's commands and we say, we're doing a good job at obeying God, and our anchor and our life and our identity is anchored in our ability to obey, then we will be filled with pride and arrogance and say, I'm a good person. People should be more like me. And the other side of that is if we look at God's commands and we're aware that we're a failure and we have failed at those commands and we don't live up to God's commands, then we will feel de dejected, depressed, and we will feel like such a loser. We'll say we're worthless. We're a nobody. How could anyone love me? Because our identity has been anchored in our ability to obey God. And the reasons we will obey, if it's not anchored in, the, in, in, in God and what he has done for us, it won't be joyful, it'll be a sense of obligation. Well, we have to do it because God has told us to do it. And now we're at this place to understand where Paul is leading us in this scripture. Now we're at a place to understand the Bible's call to a holy life to a life of obedience. For three chapters, Paul's spoken of the blessing of God's character and work in our life. He rejoices with them and the fact that they have, they have the, that the gospel has come to them, they've embraced it, they believe it, and it's showing in their life, evidence of a life that's been captured by God. And now he pivots. I mean, big time he pivots. And we could see this pivot because the first words in chapter four is, finally then, brothers. Okay, you remember everything I said, Okay, now let's talk. I need to talk about your life. I need to talk about how you will live. And like any good pastor, he says, in conclusion, and then he talks for two more chapters, right? And so, so Paul says, in conclusion, and then he talks for a long time. It's Paul's transition to a new topic, to apply all that he has said about the gospel, to apply all that we know about who God is and his love and grace. How does it affect your life? And he gives two specific areas, sex and love for others. And I'm going to spend our time this morning only on one of those, on sex, because it's obviously more fun to talk about <laughs> than the other. And one really flows from the other. And I have the spiritual gift of making people feel uncomfortable. So it's a natural fit for me. Paul introduces us to a life that pleases God in chapter 4. And in verse 3, he quickly, in what seems to be rather abruptly, he tells us the purpose of our obedience. So we look at the pattern for obedience. We've seen that. Paul said, okay, three chapters. Here's the pattern. Now remember that. Now let's talk about the purpose, why we obey. The purpose of obedience. In verse 3, he says, for this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. What's lacking here in this passage is Paul is not talking at all. He's not critiquing the culture. And here is why. There is no need to speak at length to try to convince them that they live in a sex-obsessed culture. For the same reason, there's no need for me to try to convince you that we live in a sex-obsessed culture. There was no need for Paul to write about it or to talk about it. He doesn't need to expound the culture. It is, it is there. It's present. It's in their face. It's saturated in their culture. Paul is concerned about how God's people live in the midst of a sex-obsessed culture. 
Many people in that culture saw sexuality, uh, sexual immoral behavior as, as very normal. It was just a way of life. Many sexual partners, prostitution, prostitution as, as cultic or temple or even religious reasons, uh, illicit sexual activity that was encouraged in their culture, not much different than it is even today. Homosexuality, pedophilia, prostitution, it was all common. And he was even seen strange when there was a person who didn't live like that. You've seen it. You know, there's reality shows where there's someone on, you know, looking for a, looking for a spouse, and that person maybe has, has never been in a sexual relationship before. And it's like everyone's talking about, how is, I've never heard of such a thing. Look at this alien that came from out of space, you know. It's just the weirdest thing. And I'll tell you, this isn't just the non-Christians. It's the weirdest thing for me, even as a pastor, to encounter Christians who enter into marriage as virgins. It is strange. It's strange in our culture. We look at the people, and it's just the oddest thing. And Paul was not concerned how the world lived, but he was concerned with how the church lived. And he writes to Christian people whom God has called out of a sexually immoral culture, and he wants to talk to people who God has called out of this culture and who is called into relationship with himself. Look at what God has done. He's drawn you to himself. And I want to talk about how you are to live because of that. Talking about God's concern for his people regarding sex is difficult for a couple reasons. One, it's a topic that's often uncomfortable for a lot of people because it's often kept very private for obvious reasons. Second, the talk of obedience in this area is going to instruct us to live a life to discipline ourselves and to control our impulses. And that's really the hardest thing to do. The message of self-control is radically different than a message in our culture who tells us to be ourself and to follow our heart. And it's no different in the context that Paul is speaking. Paul is saying, you're going to have to live a life where you restrain your heart and you follow God. And they say, that's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Control my feelings, not do what's pleasing to me. The will of God is restrain the impulses of your heart and follow God. That is what the will of God is. Restrain the impulses of your heart and follow God. And Paul defines this new way of life of restraining our impulses and following God as the will of God. And he defines it as our sanctification. Sanctification is a word that we might not use in everyday conversations, but it's a common and important biblical word in the scriptures. And it's a biblical word that conveys God's purposes for his people. They are to be transformed. They are to be pulled out of a culture that does not know or enjoy or love God and a people that are distinct and like God and becoming increasingly transformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. The purpose of sanctification, it conveys this idea of transformation being taken out of and used for holy and noble purposes. And God says, that is my will for you, to pluck you out of a culture that is wicked and to fill you with my love and peace and joy so that you will know who I am, so that you will enjoy who I am, and you will grow in my likeness every day. Look here in verse 4 to 5, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In other words, if we know God, 
if we understand the goodness of why he created us, male and female, if we understand what he has done for us in sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, if we know the hope that awaits us at Jesus' return, then we will view his commands to us, each and every one, not as a way to kill our joy or to take away our life, but as a way to invite us into his transforming joy. What is the purpose of obedience? Nothing less than to truly experience the beauty, love, and delight of knowing God. We obey to enjoy God more. What is available to us is a deep and intimate relationship with God. His commands are there to guide our hearts and our lives so that we will enjoy him. What is the difference between those who are his people and those who are not his people? He says, some know me, some don't. And if you know me, how could you live like you don't know me? Every commandment of God in the scriptures is not him being this cosmic cop killing our joy. Every commandment of God is an invitation into true and lasting joy. Every commandment of God is into a window of knowing him more. And the more we know him, the more we will joyfully live our lives to please him. It's been said that every sin is, that we commit is simply a failure to believe the true things about God and, and what he has revealed to us. Every time we commit a sin, what we're really doing practically is believing a lie and rejecting a truth about God. Don't you see, when God instructs us in the way of, of sexual purity, he's not just simply telling us how to live. He's inviting us into the depths of his faithfulness and commitment and love and relationship and sacrifice that, that, that we can find nowhere else in any other kind of relationship. He's giving us a picture of the kind of relationship we can only have with him. Paul makes a radical point in this passage. He says, how can we claim to know God, love God, trust God, and fail to seek to please him in our life, in this area and in others? And furthermore, if we don't seek to please God, what does that mean? If we abandon God's truth in this area, if we reject his commands, if we, if we embrace the lies of our culture and reject the truth of God, what does that mean about us? What it means, and Paul makes no mistake of his warning in verse 6 through 7, if we reject God's teaching on this, we are not rejecting Paul or man's teaching or the church's teaching or a conservative Christian view of sexuality we're rejecting God himself. We're rejecting God himself. And so, my friends and brothers and sisters, we must fight this fight of faith. We must go against the cultural grain in this area, not to feel like just a good Christian, not to be pious or prideful or to show others that we are good, but we must fight the fight of faith in obedience to God's will in this area for the purpose of enjoying God and knowing him now and forever. The joy that he has offered to us, the life that he has given to us, the life that he has rescued us from. There's some great news as we continue to go. 
not are we to fight this good fight of obedience to God's will. We're not only to fight it even alone. We are not left to our own will and our own strength to fight this fight. We are given a gift from God. We are given his Holy Spirit. And this is where the power for obedience comes in. No matter what has happened in our lives, no matter where you are now or where you come from, we know that God gives us his Holy Spirit to indwell his people, to teach us, to comfort us, to convict us, to transform us, to strengthen us, to walk in ways that are pleasing to him. There's no doubt we face great spiritual challenges, but Christ sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts to grant us the wisdom and strength to honor him with our lives, apart from which we would never have a chance. This is amazing news, that we have the Holy Spirit, that God gives people the Holy, his Holy Spirit, the great blessing of Christ living in us through the Holy Spirit means that when it comes to our struggles, of failing to please him with our lives, God does, does not just look at our struggles and our failures from a distance. He rolls up his sleeves, he comes down, he gets involved, he experiences our greatest struggles on our, for us, he, he faces our greatest enemy, he defeats sin, death, and condemnation. And when Jesus died on the cross, our sins died with him, and we are no longer under that judgment of God. We are no longer under his wrath according to our past sins, our present sins, or even our future sins. But we are judged not according to our character and record, but according to the righteousness of Christ. This is the benefit of having the Holy Spirit in our lives. To have the Holy Spirit means that when Jesus rose from the grave, that he conquered death, he brings new life to all who are united to him through faith. It means that we are no longer a slave to sin. We don't have to follow the passions of our heart. We don't have to follow the impulses of our um, lusts. We've been set free from sin. And our past does not determine our future. It means that Jesus' power is ours it means his love is ours, his peace is ours, his joy is ours. It means the relationship that he shares with the Father is ours. And maybe for today, this means for you, I don't know what it means for you, specifically for your life, but Paul even, he even, he defines for us, what does it mean to, to be in a, a sexually immoral relationship? What does that mean? And the, the, the broad defense for the definition of sexual immorality we are certain of this. It means any sexual activity outside of a heterosexual marriage. It's a broad definition of scripture. What does that mean for you? Maybe today it means that you can confess your sins. That you are able to confess your sins now. Maybe it means for you that you can come to Jesus now. So that when he returns, you don't have to feel his judgment. You don't have to be afraid of what he thinks of you. For you will be safe. You will be hidden in his love. You will be called his beloved. Maybe it means that you can seek forgiveness from a God who delights to give it. Transformation is the special work of the Holy Spirit. That is what he is about. That is what he does. That is what he delights in doing to transform, to sanctify, to make right. It is the will of God that we would be sanctified. 
We don't see it a ton, but I often when I, this is a good practice for you when you read scripture. Pause for a long time when you come across a phrase that says, this is the will of God, dot, dot, dot. We're always wanting to know, God, what do you want for my life? How do I live? How do I know I'm living in a life in a way that's pleasing to you and obedient to you? So when he explicitly says, I'll tell you, this is my will. This is my purpose. This is my hope and joy and desire for you. That you'd be sanctified. That you'd be transformed. That we'd be rescued from a sinful state of existence and transformed to the image of his beloved son, Jesus. And we started the sermon with a metaphor of the path, the journey on this path. And so let me end there as well. The Spirit of God is God's guiding hand in our lives. Whenever we want to give in to the lusts of our heart, whenever we want to give in to the impulses of our heart and to follow another path on the road, the Spirit shows us the way. The Spirit reminds us of the teachings of Christ, works in our heart to convict us, to challenge us, to empower us. Whenever we get lost and lonely and feel feel completely like a failure and we feel scared and confused and we don't know what to do. The Spirit is there as in the hand of God to assure us of the promises of God that He will never leave us, that He will never forsake us. No matter how far off that path we have wandered, He is with us to guide us back. He shows us His love poured out for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. God is already working in you. Maybe you experiencing Him even this morning. And he is calling you to know him, to enjoy him, and to follow him. And maybe for the first time, hopefully, you're seeing that that obedience, the call to obedience, isn't just a call to just be a good person already. Just be a good Christian. Shame on you. And maybe you're seeing something different, hopefully, for the first time. Maybe you're seeing the gospel, that it's an invitation into knowing a lasting joy and love that you've never had before. God is working in you. Give, he's giving you power and desire to do what's pleasing to him. Don't miss out on his invitation to the fullness of joy.